think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 115 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 116th episode. I'm Laurent Carbonell. I'm Aitzen Rainbow. No, no drama from you today, huh? No, I mean, I was thinking how much we've slowed down. The The pace has slowed down a little bit. I think iTunes has degraded or has uh, derated us from a bi-weekly podcast to a monthly podcast, which, which hurts inside. Uh, but you know, it's been summer, folks, and I've been enjoying that sunshine. Yeah, and you know, busy all around with various things. So yeah, uh, no apologies from us, but uh, we are we are back now. Uh, and we want to talk about sort of three things today, and one of them is following up on a question we got via Twitter DM uh, about what does it mean to be exempt staff, and we will get into that, uh, which is itself a simple answer, but we will expound on it in various ways. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the state of the election, not in super granular detail, because no one, you know, if you want to listen to horse race, you can, you can go elsewhere. Um, and the third thing that we wanted to talk about was platforms. opening my notes, platforms uh, that have all come. Out. I wrote podcast in my notes. <laughs> that which is, is not very helpful. <laughs> That's not what we want to talk about. Uh, the platforms. Um, so all all of the major parties at this point have their platforms out. Um, so we uh, we had a chance to take a look, and uh, we'll be uh, you know taking some some fun little bits and talking about that. So do you want to lead off with the the context on the exempt staff thing and sort of launch into where you wanted to go with that? Okay, so on at the most basic level, you will likely have heard us perhaps reference exempt staff uh, on the podcast before, and it, I guess it sort of begs the question: exempt from what? And the answer to that, if I have my legislation right, is the Public Service Employment Act. Ding, 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 ding. That was correct. Ding, ding. Um, basically, it's a term used to refer to ministerial staff um, is sort of the, the start and the end of it. Um, yes. They have less job security. They have, you know, comparable benefits in most categories. Um, but really what they lose out on is job security. And that's sort of the nature of the beast when you're in a minister's office and you um, you live and die at the discretion of your yes. of your minister or of the But correspondingly, as the case may correspondingly, be. Correspondingly, they also have the freedom and the, the mandate to sort of serve the minister in a political way. They are the, the quintessential the boys in short pants, if you will. Yes. Uh, so they, they are very much the... Um, the raison d'être of the podcast in, in some ways and, uh, and what we've spent a lot more time focusing on than uh, most of our competitors yes and hill staffers are not typically considered exempt staff ledge assistants uh constit staffers those folks are sort of a separate category entirely indeed because um, they're governed by the Parliament of canada act and the rules of the house of Commons. yes although sometimes broadly the term boys in short pants or boys and or girls in short pants, children in short pants, whatever the term is, um, is used to refer to both. Often it's more so targeted towards the government side of things. Um, yeah, because well, that's I mean, where just because that's where the bigger are. Yes, exactly. Um, so that is a quick, uh, that's sort of the quick answer, but I think the, the more interesting vantage point right now to, to bring to it is what are these folks up to today? And sort of, over the RIP period, sometimes in advance of the RIP period, but basically the call goes out from the center, the center being PMO, um, to basically 
please leave your office and go campaign somewhere. Usually there's a nominal amount of coordinating done. You can sort of put your hand up and say, I have nowhere to go. Um, you know, the entire exempt staff uh, of a minister's office does not go campaign in that minister's riding. Um, that is not usually how it works. In some cases, maybe uh, a single person goes and is sort of their campaign manager or one of their senior staffers. Um, that's sort of the best case scenario, maybe one or two, maybe three if you're really lucky and no one's paying attention. Um, but usually there's a sense that they want to distribute folks from Ottawa across the country into um, winnable ridings or hotly contested ridings or exempt staffers go where they have free room and board um, back to their parents' place um, where there is a family cottage, wherever they can live cheaply for, uh, you know, 36 days plus. Uh, because yes. and of course some because they're not paid. Go ahead. Um, when yes. when you leave Ottawa, you are to take a unpaid leave of absence um, from your position, and you proceed to be uh, paid when your government is reelected. Otherwise, you return to Ottawa um, frantically to pack up your offices, as the case may be. Yes. The other uh, option, of course, is some people get redistributed into this, the central campaign slash war group. Yes, that is also certainly a possibility. Um, so the other half of that is it's not everyone. There are two sort of exceptions. Generally, maybe one or two people stay in the minister's office and compose the skeleton crew. Um, they continue to be privy uh, to some of you know, the, the cabinet documents, additional information that perhaps they need um, to field issues that come up that they may or may not be able to, to sort of wade into. Um, all around the confines of the caretaker convention. Um, but generally those people are sitting in their office and doing nothing all day, um, sort of in the event of emergency. The other possibility is that they're staffing their minister in a official capacity, um, which is to say the caretaker convention allows for one exempt staff to continue to staff their minister um, like on the ground basically. Yes. And including uh, during a 5K race, for instance. <laughs> yes. Which I was grossly unprepared for. Um, <laughs> Blaney made you look out of shape and foolish. Although I don't think that was during work hours. I think that was a, a weekend event. Uh, but what you're alluding to is during the 2015 election, at least for the first half of the writ, give or take, um, I was that person for our office. Um, because the Minister of Public Safety has certain national security functions, um, that it's important that there is um, that there remains capacity to act on those and awareness, um, because there are potential official duties that need to be exercised in the event of an emergency. Beyond the national security portfolio, that is justice, public safety, D and D, are probably are the three that come to mind right now. I wouldn't expect to see a lot of staffers for fisheries and oceans to pick on them or ESDC or wage um, acting in their official capacities in the event of you know a fisheries emergency is unlikely although yes. the fisheries have been rather unruly um, in recent years so if that were to be the case um, perhaps they would consider it but generally it's about the national security portfolios but the rule is not um, that narrowly drawn 
Uh, Very good stuff. Yeah, so that's sort of, you know, the gist of it. Um, If you're working on a local campaign, maybe you've met some of these folks um, who are like, yeah, I'm from Ottawa. Um, And often they take sort of a central coordinating role. Um, But sometimes not. Sometimes they're just content to knock doors and take a a backseat on these things. But campaigns are always desperate for volunteers. So, yes, a warm body is worth a lot to a campaign. They absolutely are. Um, so yeah, I think that sort of covers the waterfront in terms of what political staff are up to during campaigns. Um, you wanted to talk a little about sort of the, the arc of, uh, what exempt staffers should be thinking right now, perhaps hmm. about, you know, they're, they're, there's nothing a Chan loves more than dispensing career advice, usually (laughs) unsolicited to people who haven't asked for it. I I actually, Uh, so this is, I love giving career advice around Ottawa, particularly (laughs) for young people, just because I feel like I have, uh, gone through a lot. Like I've worked on different sides of the industry. I've bounced around Ottawa a fair amount. Um, so like considerations that people don't think of when they come to Ottawa, like Go to Excel HR, one of the staffing firms, and get them to run a security clearance for you um, because it helps you get in the door faster, even if you have no real intention to work for Excel HR or to pursue staffing that way. Um, But getting that reliability or secret level clearance can be a real asset for all of your other job seeking. Uh, So that that type of advice. Buying a very comfortable, oil-resistant couch. (laughs) Yes. Lest you (laughs) end up uh, unemployed for months and months after... Uh, the campaign, which is, well... To... does happen. I've done it. You've done it. I played Breath of the Wild during mine. You played Overwatch during yours. But it's a... to, to make it personal, in 2015, post-election, um, post I was looking into working for, you know, these temporary government contracts with ExcelHR um, because ExcelHR is the employer, and therefore you're able to keep your severance while working for uh, a staffing firm. However, um, most of these positions require security clearance. I, of course, had a security clearance in the Government of Canada. Um, but there are different security clearances within the Government of Canada. Not, and I'm not talking about levels, but they are held by different folks. There is security clearances done by public safety. There are security clearances done by uh, PSPC or Public Work, PWGSC. Um, and there are ones done by DND, and the most commonly used ones are PWGSC or PSPC, um, which cover most of the government of Canada and most of the other departments lean on PSPC. Um, that's sort of their function for contractors. But if you have one held with public safety, nowhere else in the government of Canada really recognizes it unless you transfer your security clearance. So I was uh, unemployed and unemployable uh, at the within the government of Canada, outside of the public safety, um, because no one would recognize my security clearance, which seemed absolutely ridiculous. Going from public safety um, at the center of the national security portfolio to uh, being unemployable, for instance, at Agriculture Canada because I failed to have a recognized security clearance was just baffling um yes Mm -hmm. but that is that is the nature of government bureaucracy so you know it's this type of advice that folks should consider if you're working in the minister's office of uh public safety right now i would make the you know the request to your office manager to have your public your uh uh to transfer your security clearance to pspc to have it recognized by 
most of the government of Canada. Yeah. Very very helpful advice for about seven people that <laughs> in the, I'm in, sure listen to this podcast event, regularly. Um, that you lose. But more realistically, sort of the broad the broad level advice, and I've you know, I've given it to some liberal staffers that I'm friends with, is don't stay one election too long. And this advice is too late for the liberals who are looking at the polls right now and are a little concerned. Um, not to say the conclusion of the election is, uh, you know, determined by any means. But broadly, as political staff, you are able to leave on the highest note when you leave uh, under your own power. That is to say, you do not wait for the government to fall, uh, at which point five to six hundred comparably qualified folks uh, who live in a very tight geographic area are looking yes. for the same type of work and meanwhile the in the same places at the same places and meanwhile those places are more eager in uh hiring your political opponents um than they are you for instance uh government relations firms if the uh if the conservatives were to take power would be looking to pivot their uh staff roster to be more heavily conservative than liberal uh, you know a 60 40 or a 70 30 split is pretty common at the larger government relations firms or even, you know, it's not limited to government relations firms, uh, in-house organizations, etc. Um, you know, generally folks are mindful of what color of staff they have on if they're engaged in sort of the partisan staffing game, um, which, you know, a fair number of folks around town in Ottawa are. Yes. But if you lose and you come back and you pack up your office in Ottawa and then you start job hunting... Boy, let me tell you, that is a, a very, you know, an ideal time to, to be doing that. And it's easier for some folks to then disperse across the country, go back to their hometowns and sort of fall out of politics entirely um, than it is to find jobs in Ottawa. You have a buffer, that's your severance. Um, you're entitled to some other benefits like $5,000 in... Uh, uh, career, I can't remember how it's phrased, yeah. but like career transition. What is it? It's cover letter writing. Yeah, it's for one? like yeah, career it's... transition stuff. They often, it's the type of service that's often provided when there's like massive layoffs at a company um, to sort yeah. of help people bounce back. And let me tell you, those companies will message you on LinkedIn trying to gather their $5,000 checks from you because there's like a 60 day period in which contracts need to be signed in order to avail yourself of that. Um, of that, I personally did not because I didn't think I would use the services. Uh, but a lot of people sign up for it just because and say, what the hell? It's for real it's, estate. It's not my money. Maybe I'll use this. But, you know, they will look over your CV for you and remove the typos sort of thing. I'm sure they have a more compelling pitch than that, but that, that was sort of my take. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there, that's sort of how severance works um, in the change of government. Your severance is linked to... A certain amount of discretion of your minister as well as a formula based on uh, years of service um, obviously more generous the longer you've worked there um, if you haven't worked there very long tough um, and then it's ministerial discretion and your government is going out the door anyway so i think ministers tend to be generous to their staff because you know what's the political hit to a government that's just lost like no one no one really cares at that point yeah, they can kick you on the way out, I guess. Uh, but that, that you don't really care. You're on the way out. Uh, one point I would just make on, on a broader thing, sort of a little zoomed out from uh, what you should, the conversation you have with HR uh, when you're you're packing your desk up. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I appreciate the granularity, perhaps of use to, to twelve people. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, this is, uh, well, it's of use to twelve people, but I think I, I hope and who probably don't listen to this. I, podcast, I hope more than that will find it interesting. The other thing I would add, just out of interest, is just two other pieces. That, I mean. I could say this again in two weeks, three weeks. It might be even more relevant then if there is, in fact, a change of government. Otherwise, it's not uh, very useful at all. Um, but as that process happens, generally, the minister has negotiated a timeline for exit with the deputy minister's office. Um, you know, election day is over. They have sort of a week or two, usually until cabinet is appointed. Those ministers remain ministers. Um, and those staff remain staff until the new cabinet is sworn in. But nonetheless, there's the expectation that they go in, they, uh, that they go into the office and clean their stuff up. A lot of that is often done sort of preemptively uh, before the election campaign, but it's often done much more seriously afterwards. And, you know, it goes to the point of pulling drawers out to see if there are any documents left behind. Um, because the minister's office, it's not about the public service documents, but there's political advice documents that float around uh, minister's offices. We call them blue notes. Um, and sometimes, you know, they fall behind a filing cabinet. Um, sometimes they get stuffed into the back of a drawer, whatever it is. And you really want to shake that office down because, and the public service sort of does its own clean out. Um, but there are stories in Canadian political history of folks coming into, for instance, the OLO, um, finding the shred box full of documents from the previous... Uh, government or the previous uh, occupants of the office rather and opening it up and saying oh here is uh, 50,000 documents from the previous residents of this office that are now ours to go through um, <laughs> let's see what's in here that we can uh, leverage to our political advantage so there is really a, a, a benefit to going through the office very thoroughly for any of your political advice which sometimes does not resonate the best in media um, because it's very candid, and of course, candid advice is often uh, uh, free and frank. Not even. what you want to see on the on the front page of the front page mail. Of the mail. <laughs> and the other part of it is there are uh, archiving requirements for some political advice, uh, things that the minister signs off on, things like that, um, that you have to respect with Library and Archives in Canada, Library and Archives Canada, and then ministers sort of negotiate a term. Generally, it's 20 years, 20, 30, 40 years um, before those papers Correct. are released and sort of put into the public record. Um, but for young staff, that should also be a consideration all through their career, is that any advice that they give, and if they're the you know noted author of Briefing Note X, that could come out and become public information during their career. You know, the briefing note that you write at 20 could become a document that's publicly released and uh, of interest when you're 50 years old. So there's, yeah, for the minister who is likely later in his or her career, it's a bit of a different story. I, I suspect at, you know, age 85, they don't really care as much. Um, but for young political staff, it can be uh, a consideration to keep in mind. Indeed. And uh, the one thing I just want to say about this is is just about the arc of a government a little bit. Because as you say, uh, the, the incentive for the individual staffer is not to leave one election too late, right? I, I think that that's, that's solid advice and it's good and people should be thinking about what they want to do. Because, um, you know, politics isn't all there is in life. It's, it's, of course, important and you do important work in government. You do important work in opposition too. 
uh, it's worthwhile, it's rewarding, but, like, at some point you need to think about how you're going to leave because, you know, like, it's... Yeah, and some people are actually... Yeah, I, I say this. I know a lot of people who are who have had long careers on the Hill and are very happy there. Um, I think they are more the exception than the rule. Uh, so I think it, it is wise to keep an eye out and to think about what you're doing after you're leaving politics, and that's not to say that, you know, you should you should cash out, but it's like, you know, partisan politics might not be the best way to accomplish or to work in things that you think are important you know like yeah i mean there's a lot of reasons so but at at the go ahead just what i'd say quickly is like working in partisan politics as an exempt staff can be you know extremely rewarding um you're at the center of decision making it's obviously it is very valuable um it is a public service um, you know, there's no two ways about that. There's a lot of sacrifice made by people who are working in these positions. Um, however, at the end of the day, a lot of these folks are young and are uh, career oriented and career driven. And you also, at the back of your mind, have to consider, you know, your own career. You're, you're not doing this to then be unemployed for, uh, you know, your late 20s. And so everyone has to be driven by themselves and your exit creates new opportunities for other people who benefit and are provided opportunities uh, by joining the government at perhaps the suboptimal time. Um, But, you know, every person ultimately needs to make decisions that are right for them. And often that is a career driven advice that you should leave before the government collapses. Yeah. Um, so the one thing I want to say about that is that when you a government gets into office for the first time, you are never going to have more people um, who are eager to get in for all the right reasons and to you know work hard on implementing the government's agenda. And you know that that energy that they come in with is something really valuable. And you know like new governments, I think do a flurry of, of stuff uh, often because they have the sort of like administrative and you know policy energy to sort of move things along in a way that a government maybe down the road doesn't. Um, But the problem with, you know, an incoming wave of new staff is they often don't know where the light switches are, especially if the party's been out of power for a long time. I would imagine the the Trudeau government coming in after, you know, I guess nine years, uh, a lot of the older folks had moved on. I think it was pretty noted at the time that the Trudeau government wasn't really relying on on Cretan Martin era people. Uh, to the point where a lot of those folks were writing snippy op-eds in the Globe <laughs> about how you know they should respect their their elders, um, so they came in with a lot of new people who I think you know for the most part were motivated by the right things and and you know I think a lot of those people left over time and you know it's sort of a, a balance between like people who are in it for the right reasons and are energetic and then people who know what they're doing and you know obviously you can be energetic and motivated for the right things and also know what you're doing that is obviously the optimal thing. But there's a bit of a curve where um, you sort of lose energy over time in a government. You sort of, a lot of offices become very deferential to the public service uh, on sort of opposite side of their their department. Um, I think one anecdote I've heard from the the waning days of the Saskatchewan NDP government, the sort of mid-early 2000s, uh, was that, you know, people who had come in as, as envelope lickers, essentially, uh, became chiefs of staff uh, over the course of the, you know, the 90, 92, 93, 
2006-2007. And the government was not really better for it. It was people who had basically just, like, stuck around long enough to move up, uh, more or less, through through inertia. Um, And the government wasn't really, like, more dynamic and stronger for it, even though those people had been around a really long time. So that's a bit of, like, an arc in the life of a government that I think governments have to watch out for is like, you need to think about where your next generation of people who are going to be those motivated um, and effective and energetic people at the, you know, usually at the beginning of their career and, and like getting those people in and, and then getting them mentored. So they know what they're doing more quickly than they would if you had just come into government is a really important task. And frankly, like I think in politics, like, talent development uh and I've, I've gotten really into sports this Ooh. this summer much much to the much to the <laughs> annoyance of Etienne. uh and uh yeah like the, the role of talent development is a thing that like comes very naturally to to sports teams because they're sort of looking over a long-term planning horizon um and you know competing for the championship regularly and thinking like what's our road to the championship even if it's not this year it's like we have to get so many people in this position because we're weak there but political parties don't really do this people sort of fall into political parties um and it's very ad hoc and i think it would really help parties to be a little more like driven about what kinds of talents they want at the table and like how they can develop that i think it's really important and i I don't think there's enough thought into the the theory and practice of of these things uh etienne i know for instance you did the conservative internship program at one point yeah that that was that was my pathway into uh into government into into the role that i was in yes um yes and and i think that's 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 helpful and good but you i think you also noted at the time that it was sort of a mix of people who were like yourself coming in from at the outside and wouldn't have sort of had the occasion to break into partisan politics otherwise. And then also people who I think to put it charitably came from long traditions of, uh, of party service in their family. Yeah. Yes. There were certainly the, uh, the patronage <laughs> interns, um, as there are in every, I wasn't going to put in, it that in way. Every, I would put it generously. In every political party. No, but I, so you say talent, talent development. Um, but often the critique is that, um, to, to use minister's office as the example, because that's really what we're talking about here is on the exempt staff side of things, not, not the opposition mm-hmm. side of things, um, is that politics is too insular and it's not really about talent development, but talent recruitment. Um, mm-hmm. mi- minister's offices, very early on in the process, uh, they take a look around and they, they draw folks from uh, the private sector, from NGOs, from you know anywhere you can possibly imagine. When the liberals came into... Uh, power they sort of did a much publicized like the big call call. i don't i can't think of anyone who got hired based on that you know it turned out that the the liberal exempt staff benches were staffed by a lot of kathleen Wynne folks and not a lot of i submitted my cv and i'm from you know crow's nest past uh crow's nest pass not past to be clear um and that ceases to happen later in government very quickly it becomes who can we hire from an mp's office um because Mm -hmm. we know them they're safe um they have the partisan credentials uh etc so it sort of pivots from a what are the expertise these people are bringing to how safe and familiar are they sure there's a trade-off. I think there, there's no question to me that there, there's a bit of a trade-off there, and I think it's wise to bring people in from outside, and I think you sort of, you, you consider those your, your free agents or your, your designated hitters. 
but I do think that like it's easier to teach smart like it's easier to teach people who have good political antenna how to sort of refine that and get good at the sort of subject matter stuff than it is to teach smart policy people political antenna you know like and and that's true um but it's sort of one of the interchange the interchanges that is absent from the political staffing level if you read the yeah. hill to, uh hill climbers um which is the you know which the, the back page it. of the the hill times or often the back page of the hill times um where it details sort of the the movements of political staff you know you really get a sense of how insular it is it's you know yeah. Uh, this person who's been at this office for this amount of time has now moved over here and that person is taking the role yeah. from this office and you know it's shuffling the deck and it's incredibly rare particularly later in a government's life that new folks are brought in there's this new person from you know not from a campus club or not from uh, a constituency office or whatever it is that has been brought in for their unique skills and talent at a senior level, particularly. Um, sure, it happens yeah. more at the junior levels and that's fine. Um, but it's really, when we're talking about having influence and impact on government, it's more at the director level and above. The director, deputy chief of staff, yes. chief of staff level. Though I do think bringing in like a director level someone from like an NGO or a union or a company or something, I think those people would be more profoundly culture shocked and you know initially i think less effective because it's it's quite different you know running the political side of a government department than it is running a whatever um, else like if they're pretty unique organizations yes. and i think like look i look fundamentally like i agree with you that it is good for for parties and for governments to bring in people from outside of government because fresh perspectives are always good i just think that like i think parties should be more conscious of thinking a bit longer term about like how are we going to get the people to run an effective government kind of from the get-go? And I, it's just like that doesn't really exist. Like it's very hand-to-mouth in the political party space. Um, and like a lot of that is that political parties just don't have a lot of money and like they're very reliant on their, their House of Commons budgets uh, when they're out of government. And those stretch only so far really. And uh, it's very hard to sort of like get a talent, you know, pipeline going as well as the fact that like when you're in the House of Commons position – um, in, in opposition, what you have is an LO, a uh, leader's office, that is, you know, reasonably well-staffed, but then you have uh, a lot of offices that may or may not be willing to kind of play ball with that sort of, like, holistic vision for the organization as a whole and may be much more interested in kind of running it as their own little fiefdom, which, you know, they're the ones who are elected. To some degree, they're, they're very entitled to run their offices in the way that they think is best for, for their own constituency and for their own political futures. Uh, but it just makes that institution building uh very difficult and I, I think we can probably leave that conversation there for now if you're unless you have anything to add. i actually had 55 minutes more content that i wanted to add but uh <laughs> fine very fine good. i'll forgo those juicy insights for the listeners very good i guess uh, they will be left hanging um so i think the, the second thing i want to talk about was a little bit the state of the race uh in the ongoing federal election yeah, yeah really we want we want to talk about the uh the federal election, eh? Um, so listen, the number one thing that strikes me is just how annoying the um, obituaries for Aaron O'Toole were circa, what, three months ago, 60 days ago, whatever it was, when there was, you know, no shortage of columnists who were willing to say, Aaron who, um, no one's ever heard of this guy, 
as if this isn't a cycle that's played itself out in Canadian politics like every five years or so. Um, you know, the fact the fact of the matter is, as a opposition leader, during a time of you know prolonged national crisis, it is incredibly hard to introduce yourself to Canadians um, and to have build name recognition and profile uh, during a pandemic. Um, period. And so the fact that, you know, the writ has dropped, Canadians tune in. A lot of people will say, you know, Canadians aren't tuned in, but I'm going to ignore those folks. Uh, Canadians begin to tune in. And then Aaron O'Toole basically spikes in the polls um, from a sort of historic low of conservatives polling, depending on the pollster, around 25%, uh, much lower than sort of the conventional floor for conservatives. I mean, this all, I, I don't want to say I saw this coming, but I always sort of felt this was going to be the case that when the writ came up, particularly around the debate, that anyone who knows um, Aaron or who has been following him or has seen him in parliamentary politics know that he can perform quite well. Um, he is someone who likes to sort of debate recreationally. Um, likes to engage deeper into policy issues and is hap and can come across as prime ministerial um, in a way that no one gave him credit all, for. All talents sharpened by listening to this podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, in a way that no one gave him credit for because the polls were bad in the middle of a pandemic when it was nearly impossible for him to distinguish himself. Um, this is not me trying to pump his tires. This is me basically scolding the commentariat in Canada for being so sort of one note. Uh when it, it this is a cycle we have seen time and time again that yes. people I, I do not start okay. parsing their options until the election campaign proper, with the exception of the Greens who've yep. been imploding the entire the entire time. That that's my little asterisk yes. on this. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and I'll, all I would add to that is I think I I think we've both been saying for a long time that like yes, the polls were where they were, but I there was a lot of underlying volatility. That was kind of like, people are simmering and weird, right? Like, it's been a weird year and a half. People are, are pissed off and cranky for all kinds of reasons. And, like, some of that might just alchemize itself into weirdness in an election. And I think people really underrated that factor. Like, it's just, you know, people have been eating horse paste. Like, they're, they're doing weird things, guys. Like, <laughs> you, you just don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, and... So to, to just dig into the dynamics on the conservative side, this year you see the PPC um, polling fairly well. Um, that doesn't mean they'll win any seats, but in terms of a, as, as a percentage of the Canadian population, they've certainly um, tapped into something in terms of you know six or seven percent in some polls. Um, in the West, there is the Maverick Party that conservatives are also competing with. Um, which, don't get me wrong, I also don't think that they are likely to draw uh, any seats. Um, but there are certainly challenges on the horizon, and by no, mean is it, by no means is it a cakewalk. Um, if listeners also listen to the Hurley Burley, which I, I can say I do not, but based on what I've seen um, on Twitter, David Hurley called the uh, Aaron O'Toole's platform sort of the the first PC platform in a generation or something to that effect. Um, it sort of goes to the argument of that I, I made you know, months ago of the conservative coalition being stronger 
um, or the ability to grow the conservative coalition and sort of the big tent collectively being stronger than a lot of people have been giving it credit for, um, that he can campaign right uh, for leadership, uh, go reasonably centrist for the election and grow his appeal. Um, and maybe he's lost some folks, but he's also gained more folks and where he's pulling at feels pretty good overall. Um, while also having yeah. uh, 6% of the Canadian electorate being further to the right in sort of the PPC libertarian camp um, and still potentially win government. You know, it, it's also possible that he loses at this point. It's very possible. Um, but if nothing else, it really does seem like the majority that liberals were going for um, rapidly fell off the table of possibilities as soon as the writ was dropped. And, you know, the debacle in Afghanistan, I think, is the most obvious thing to point to there. Um, but there's many others. Yeah, and I think also, like, while we're sort of scolding commentators, like, I think there was a, a, a real insistence that uh, the unnecessary election thing wasn't going to matter. Right, that it was going to be a blip. People are going to forget about it in two, two, three days, and we're going to be off to races. I think people. I think you do have to have an answer. Like, why are we doing this? And I think the Afghanistan thing sort of like, sort of drove it home for people that like, oh yeah, we like the government should probably be taking care of this, but they're too busy knocking on doors right now. Uh, which you know, I I think they were not able to articulate a clear thesis of why they're having the election, and then we'll we'll come back to the platform. But like, for instance, just at a high level, the platform sort of begs the question like well why what a why don't we already have this and b why do you think you couldn't do this with the current parliament right and for a lot of that platform the answer is because i think you know it's hard to come up with an answer for for especially question b and in many cases question a um so i think they were very much counting on a conservative leader remaining unpopular and unknown and an NDP sort of like, sort of staying kind of steady even with a popular leader, and being able to parlay the, the vague specter of a conservative government into you know disciplining enough left of center voters into voting for them against uh, you know to to keep the conservatives out, and it just the the dynamics have not shaken out that way. They've kind of been slowly bleeding. The prime minister is getting less and less popular. The conservative leader is sort of very much stabilized now at this point into like a you know i think the net is still negative but like not terribly so and better than the, the prime minister and then the ndp has had like a reasonably effective campaign so far with the popular leader and is doing i think better than many people expected uh, myself included i will say uh so you know we love to be wrong sometimes um so that's yeah, like I, I just think like I, I do wonder like how much the downside risks were analyzed around the table at, at you know Chateau Liberal, uh, of thinking like, you know what what's like what's the worst that can happen here and how are we gonna react to it and it just doesn't really seem like a lot of that stuff was kind of like very thoroughly considered which kind of speaks to what I said earlier about like you reach a point where after a while people leave and you're left with people who you know, maybe are not the, the broadest, bluest sky thinkers in available at the beginning of your government and can't quite react to stuff as quickly and as nimbly as they once would have been able to. Yes. I mean, there seem to be 
So my, my first challenge earlier on in your remarks was about you know, the extent to which the electorate has been polarized by the early election call and is having you know, negative thoughts about the liberals as a result of that. We have a lot of, there's a lot of evidence um, in last, you know, in the COVID period, in the COVID era, um, where incumbent parties have been reelected. Yeah. We had speculated in November of last year that the government, like the factors seemed to be lined up for the government to pull the plug then. Um, and maybe in many regards, that would have been a better time for them. Um, because it was pre-vaccination for a lot of people, and it seemed like COVID management by the federal government was still uh, very much the number one issue. With most Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians now vaccinated, um, I think the impetus for keeping the incumbent government has weakened on a lot of people's minds. The, uh, this is still an ongoing crisis that needs to be managed. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's still an ongoing crisis that needs to be managed, but just in terms of how people perceive it in their daily lives, the provinces have opened up, uh, you know, in some provinces it's, it's Alberta at the front of this, um, it's sort of back to life as normal or attempted back, uh, back to life as normal. Um, people are... It's summer, people are going out, people are socializing again, all of these things. It's not the same feeling as it was pre-vaccination. Everyone is, or a lot of people are double-vaxxed. And so some of those concerns that were really serious and very real about maintaining a steady ship of state that were perhaps lively in November seem to no longer be the case. The liberals seem to be trying to make that the case with mandatory vaccination. but to what extent they're tangibly tangibly able to do it, I think is another question. Everyone seems yeah. to be like sort of, I mean, it, it's probably worth mentioning the uh, just before the liberals pulled the plug um, and the prime minister went to the GGs. One of the last things they did was sort of a mandatory, a, a policy for mandatory vaccination in the federal public service. Um, which Treasury Board put out policy guidance on, which then immediately became political post-writ, and then Treasury Board withdrew their policy guidance because the Conservatives were harping on it that basically uh, it said the exact same thing the Conservatives were saying. And there's been a lot of sort of futzing around the edges about is it mandatory vaccination with a testing policy or mandatory testing with a vaccination policy. And it, you know, it just hasn't stuck, I think, in the same way it would have in November. Yeah, I'm going to point to an example from uh, from mid-century here, which is the 1945. I I love when you go to mid-century. Tell me more. Yes. Well, so people in the UK love their, their Winston Churchill. They do. Uh, you ask around now, people for the most part they like him a lot, um, you know. And people have a, a range of opinions on Winston Churchill. Uh, and uh, for my mind, for my money, not, not the world's best guy. But there was a wide consensus in the UK that he had managed the Second World War quite well. Uh, like people, you know, were very very happy that they had. You know, to put it in context again, it's Victory in Europe Day is May eighth, nineteen forty five. Uh, obviously, 
pretty good if you're Winston Churchill. You feel not bad about that. There's then an election on July 8th, 1945. So about eight weeks later. And Labour wins by like three and a half million votes. Uh, and comes in with, I, I think, the first Labour majority government in UK history. Then they're there for, I think, seven, eight years. You might think that's weird. Like, they just got through this enormous crisis. Wouldn't they want to have, like, the same people who got them through the crisis keep going? It's like sometimes people want to move on, you know? And, like, different issues come to the fore. And certainly, like, people in the UK in 1945 thought that Labour had a better offer on post-war reconstruction than uh, Churchill and the Conservatives did. And they went for it. And also, to some extent, psychologize a bit. It's like people want to turn the page a little bit on, you know, five years of deprivation and bombing in that case. And in our case, 18 months of intermittent lockdowns, et cetera. Not you know, much less suffering and, and on the whole, but still quite a bit of suffering. Of Tiger people. King, a lot, a lot of suffering. Well, I mean, a lot of people did die. Like people lost, you know, uh, eight relatively uh, elderly family members and you know many other people besides. And it's, it's, I think there has been a lot of collective trauma in the country that people are keen to turn the page from. So, yeah, once again, it's just I think that there was a lot of hubris involved in, in this election, calling a lot of assumptions that things would remain quite static instead of fairly volatile. And I think that was very unwise. So there you go. And here we are, 20... 20- uh, 19 days out from the writ or not, from e-day not the writ <laughs> from e-day yes so we will see what happens i mean i don't i don't think any of us are in the prognostication business really i i think things are loosey-goosey enough in the, in the ether out there that things could go i i wouldn't be like flabbergasted by any sort of potential result at this point um so yeah i mean over the course we'll of the see. last two weeks it seems like liberal majority conservative or liberal majority liberal minority conservative minority and conservative majority have all been put on the table um yep. with majorities be it liberal or conservative being the least likely outcome um but it seems likely that it's going to be a minority government of some sort um Yes. And it's worth saying, too, that like a conservative minority government, I think, faces additional hurdles in the post-election seat math of like, yes. do other parties consent to have a conservative minority? So, government? yeah, let's let's talk about this extremely quickly. Um, very real challenges, be it conservative, where in the world in which conservatives eke out a minority, I think some partisans will defer to saying this might be something like the early Harper years where... Uh, Jagmeet does sort of pulls sort of a Jack Layton or something happens that allows uh, the conservative minority to survive. Um, there's a lot of sort of futzing there where folks aren't really clear about how exactly this is going to happen and whether or not the NDP would play ball or the liberals would uh, immediately seek a new leader. And so it'd be sort of a similar situation as well. But Paul Martin walked away. A lot of that's not clear. Um, and could be potentially very different. And so there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of question marks there. Um, the, the flip side of that is if the liberals get a minority that is weaker than the present minority, um, to what extent do the knives come out for uh, Trudeau, you know, taking the country to an election and getting a weaker minority after his quote unquote good stewardship throughout the pandemic period? It seems like it would be time for liberal partisans to begin rallying behind new leaders, be it uh, Mark Carney, uh, Mark Miller. Are there any other marks I can point to? Oh, you're stealing my mark now. 
My Mark III. Um, any other Marks um, or Christia's Freeland, uh, wh- whoever the, the presumptive next generation of the Liberal Party is. Um, although, admittedly, the Liberal Party has been uh, virtually knife-free, as if they all went through a metal detector before joining the party. Um, this this go-around, which is so very unlike the Liberals historically. Uh, but if, you know, if Trudeau shows up with a hundred-some-odd seats and is barely squeaking in there, it's going to look really bad, and it's really going to feel... Um, like he is out of momentum, and I feel like a lot of staff are going to be looking around and saying, ooh, the next election is the one too far uh, time for us to get out now, and there'll be a lot of attrition in uh, sort of one way or another. Um, I would not be surprised to see senior staff jump ship. Uh, You know, I think there will be a sort of ominous feeling across the board. Uh, So there's... There, you know, there's not certainty in the most probable of cases on the other side of September 20th. No, uh, it's it's a realm of shadow, and none of us can see into it. So, yeah, we will uh, we will see when the, the the curtains rise on that on September 20th. Well, actually, not even September 20th because it will take probably several more days. Nah, uh, I don't believe. Who, well, no, it 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 almost no. certainly will because. They said the same thing about the American election, and it didn't pan out to be the case. Yeah, it took several days. No, so. uh, not really. Mo- it took me um, like 12 hours longer than normal. That's not true. That's not true. Um, my recollection of events, the, and I stand the by point, it. The point here is that the advance... Yeah, well, the advance ballots, typically, and in this time, that will include the mail-in ballots... Are, cannot be counted until all of the election day ballots are counted. So they will not even be able to start counting until, you know, fairly late. And even then, like, often they, if the result is clear, they just sort of pro forma count the advance ballots the next day. Like, if your margin of victory is more than the outstanding advance ballots, it's like, you know, the, the, the networks call it and that's that. But, like, I think the advance and mail in, the mail in. Ballots have been less than I think Elections Canada was thinking they might be, but I still think they're going to be substantial in the event that it's a quite close election uh, with a lot of close splits, even perhaps three ways, four ways in Quebec, especially like, I don't know, like it it could be a a bit until a lot of that stuff is counted. So Uh, and then, of course, you're getting into the judicial recount space if things are really tight in a couple places and if the seat counts really tight, that could matter. So it could be it, it could be decided election night could be like another week on top of that. So we. A lot of unclear stuff there. I am there. pessimistic uh, so. about the likelihood of it being this unclear, I think. The... No, yeah, I think that that's like an extreme outlier thing where, like, they're still going a week later okay. and unclear who has the most seats. I don't think that's likely Okay, the way you were talking happen, about it, it sounded like this was a 50% probability of occurring. No, I, I think, like, we, I think things will become clear, like, next day okay. and maybe okay, the day then... after is, like, the range of likely okay, It's fine. It's fine. Okay. This is this is no okay. virtually no different than any other. I mean, if, if anything, it's a breath of fresh air for BC who will not have the election called before they're done voting. So I'm I'm 100 fine <laughs> good, with yeah, that. Yeah, that's okay. true. Actually, <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, so we want to talk about platforms a bit. Uh, yes, we are fairly late into the uh, into the hour, uh, but platforms do seem important uh, for whatever. I mean. For obvious reasons, they're treated as sort of the gold standard of political knowledge is whether or not one has reviewed um, all the party's platforms. And that's sort of the uh, the common bar to which people hold themselves is, oh, I checked that party's platform. I, 
I didn't like what they were offering. And it's like, yeah, how long is that document these days? And what what's your recollection of, you know, they get the longer hundreds and longer and longer. or if not thousand yeah. plus promises that are in there? Um, so now we have, where, where do we sit? The Greens haven't put out a discernible platform. Uh, the block. No. They're also like 80 seats short of a full yeah, slate, which is pretty tough. funny. I mean, they couldn't decide whether or not they were endorsing the liberals today. So they're, they're uh, <laughs> to quote a good friend, in shambles. Um, Indeed. The Bloc Quebecois put out their platform. The NDP put out not a platform, but everyone seems to be treating it as a platform. If I'm not mistaken, the initial comms was, this isn't our platform. It's our commitments. Yeah, I don't know if that's a, a semantic distinction or a, a real distinction, um, but it sure as hell looks like a platform to everyone else. Um, the Liberals... It looks like the last platform, in fact. <laughs> you know, fair. Um, the Conservatives definitely put out uh, theirs, and the Liberals have now, just this week, put out theirs as well. Um, yes. So, I mean, we don't have the time, nor I think the inclination to go through them in uh, excruciating detail. We will leave that to our intrepid listeners. Um, do you want to just pick out some yes. things from the platform or make some high-level you know, general remarks about the contents of the platform? Sure. So the first thing I'll say is just on platforms generally is I think they, they matter both more and less than they used to. They're much more specific uh, about a broad, broad, broad range of issues. And consequently, Paul, and as you said many times, parties don't really have a lot of policy development capacity. So a lot of this stuff comes from various lobby groups. So to pick one really specific one, uh, is we talked of, of, around the last budget around uh, this uh, proposal to create a sort of DARPA-like agency. CARPA. Uh, well, the Business Council and... The, the cleverly named CARPA. Yeah, well, and it, I think the conservative version of it is called something different. I thought they were both named CARPA. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. No, I don't think so. Um, but at any rate, to, yes, I guess I, I let the cat out of the bag there a little bit. But uh, our good friend Robert Asselin and the Business Council were very successful at chopping that around. And it appears in both the liberal and conservative platforms, which is pretty funny. Uh, and if, you, if you're familiar with people, various groups, uh, pre-budget submissions and sort of standing policy statements, uh, you, can, you can hear their echo in, uh, in several platforms. And I, I won't get too into specific because it's, it's just kind of funny and uh, it's not really worth harping on too much. But advocacy groups certainly uh, have a big role in shaping party platforms, and good yeah, for that. no, I, well, so um, let, let's dig into that if, yes, if only because let, that's sort of our, our value out of the space, comparative to you know, what media will usually talk about. Um, sure. Political parties do not have well-developed platform creation apparatus um, that exists. It's very much year ad hoc. Over year. Pretty much it's ad hoc. Yeah. And so parties love to borrow ideas from, you know, the people who come to them and try and present ideas to them, as it turns out. Yeah, I would say I'm a stakeholder and like I I can point to X amount of people who base their vote off Y issue and I'm the Y issue council and here's our Z proposal. Yes. You know, then you're like, okay, great. Well, the the Y the X people who love the Y council will love Z issue and we'll include that in the plot. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so you see um, if you're familiar enough with the space, you can usually pick out, um, you know, yeah. this fishery issue was plugged from, you know, the, this fishery association two years ago and what they were proposing. Yes. You know, this... I know exactly what you're talking about. This one is from these <laughs> folks. These ones are from these folks. Um, which yeah. speaks to the value of 
or you know the the tangible payback um, period for uh, lobbying government relations, et cetera, et cetera. And I would also say it speaks to I think perhaps the public interest in having more independent policy development functions in political parties. If you are less keen to think of the the broad influence of, of lobbyists on that is policies, that is a, a perfectly thing. fair um, <laughs> and, and something I would one hundred percent agree with. I think the absence of policy and you know even robust think tanks in Ottawa. Yeah. Um, who are doing some yeah. of this policy development? You know, Canada twenty twenty is not developing policy is not developing platform promises. They did like that one paper on innovation, and I think that was like basically. Well, and then they switched to an event tank, and then they've had some. Yes. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is they did the one thing, and then it was pretty much. Yeah, I think that. back then they had more papers, and they were more paper focused. But then they switched to like, well, now it's webinars, but Obama. events and Obama <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. Um, so the Ottawa think tank community is not producing robust platform pieces. Um, they are hosting events and webinars and things like that with experts and platforms yeah. are, uh, you know, collages of industry group proposals, basically. Yes. So with that said, and very conscious of the time, I think we will step forward from that, that general observation about the, the reality of platforms. And I, I will actually take us to one more general observation about the reality of platforms is the liberal platform, very long, very big, um, when you're in government, you do have some advantages and disadvantages of presenting a platform. And I sort of mentioned this when I said that there are sort of two questions that always come to mind when you look at a, a reoffering government's platform is if this is important, why, ha- why haven't you already done it? Uh, which, you know, often there are good reasons, right? Uh, it could be any number of like, you know, we just simply couldn't get to it. We had other priorities. It wasn't in the budget, blah, blah, blah. Like there are, there are lots of things, but like you do need to have an answer for a lot of these things. And I think sometimes governments fall into the trap of like, they think it's like slopped for the hogs and that no one will question why, you know, a government that's been in power for X number of years is now proposing something that seems not that complicated to do. The other thing so, is... Give me, give me a tangible example within that. Or I can give you one if you prefer. Sure, go ahead, because I'm in my train of thought okay. now. And I've, I've destroyed you, your I train of thought. Um, I will spend 15 seconds trying to think of an example. You're, so you're the olive oil to my train of thought. Um, that, that's a Popeye. Popeye the Sailor Man reference. Oh, olive oil, the love interest. Ding, gotcha. there you yeah. go. Not olive oil, the oil. <laughs> Correct. Or is her name just olive? Okay. I think it's olive oil. Uh, it is olive oil, yes, but with yes. a Y. Uh, so the firearms, uh, the the firearms uh, liberals uh, put forward legislation around firearms, assault weapons in particular. I'm not going to get into the argument about assault weapons. Um, <laughs> let us just use that term. The assault rifle from Halo is the only assault the, weapon. <laughs> the number... Now I'm thinking Halo things. Um, the, the number one sort of uh, piece of feedback from the stakeholder community on the restrict firearm side of things was, why is the buyback that you're proposing voluntary? And the government at the time said, well, you know, we have our reasons X, Y, Z. And now the platform comes out and, you know, suddenly the buyback is not voluntary. And there's obviously a much greater uh, sum attached to it. But, you know, suddenly they've ratcheted up a lot of policies sort of one degree and they're like, aha, this is this is now the correct thing for us to be doing. Although we said it wasn't the correct thing to be doing eight months ago, but please ignore that. Yes. 
Sure, and the example I would point to is uh, the proposal for an anti-scab law in uh, in the new platform, which is something that quickly uh, explain what scabs are if they're not the things we find under band-aids no yeah scabs are a a somewhat pejorative term for replacement workers uh brought in when uh the workforce of a uh workplace is on strike um so that's uh that it would basically like weaken companies leverage in the event of a strike so that's been longstanding NDP policy. They've proposed it in, like, I think various, you know, motions and private members' bills and stuff, and the government has routinely voted against it. And, of course, you know, they've been in power six years. It's not it, – frankly, it's a pretty, like, legally trivial kind of thing. It doesn't have that many moving pieces. There are already provinces that have them or have had them in the past. Like, it's – you know, th- this is not reinventing the wheel here. And it's – I think you – like, that's one where you kind of have to answer the question, like, why now, you know? Um, so there you go. So and also the the thing the the other thing that governments have over opposition parties there is they can sort of leverage public service expertise yes. to a degree that the other parties can't and not to say that you know they're like okay public servants you're writing the liberal uh, spellbook this time like here's uh, here's what you're doing but like there's a lot of like let's say like there's a lot of policy development that happens in the year before an election often and it's not this is not to impugn the public service in the slightest because they're doing what they're told to do and that's that's the role. But it's it is true that a lot more resources go into developing a lot of proposals uh, at the public service level than, of course, the opposition party did. Yeah, and if only because sort of you know a a sizable chunk of the liberal platform is basically uh, budget twenty twenty one, if not budget twenty twenty one, ratcheted up uh, a notch. And so they're able to lean on all the policy expertise of the 500 some odd exempt staff um, who they were able to consult who have policy expertise and have been working with the civil service over the last six years in some cases. Yeah, well, like on just ongoing policy processes that they've had at the public service. Yes, where when opposition parties are developing their platforms, they are uh, groups of under 10, maybe under five people. yeah. who have full-time jobs covering policy across the government of Canada, if, if at all, um, or they work in other gigs um, and yeah. are suddenly tasked with throwing together a platform. Uh, so the, the comparable apparatus at the hands of the government versus the opposition is very, very different. And it's very disparate. Yeah, yeah immensely Extremely. different. And you know, one of the things that the civil service is busy doing right now is uh you know in addition to keeping the lights on is writing transition documents for all prospective governments for all prospective outcomes um that include details of well here are the the pros and cons not of your proposal about how it can be implemented or perhaps considerations of how to tweak it and that type of thing they generally don't come at it from the lens of uh don't do this um but rather uh, here are the challenges if you try and go in this way. Um, and that's why you see changes between promises during election campaign and when governments yeah. go to implement things because, you know, the difference in policy brain power um, that folks are able to uh, give to a specific issue can be very, very different. Yeah. So we're saying in general that the resources available for anything for, for, you know, the range of parties from government to like third or fourth party is very different. And like a lot of energy, if you're the third or fourth party, 
uh, goes into projecting the image that you are a you know national party that plays with the big boys right like you just have to spend a lot of time and energy sort of keeping up the sort of like image of a national party that is like professionally and thoroughly staffed and all of that funded and all that stuff so there's less time to you know do the stuff that you know is productive but kind of you know not as immediately burning pressing that has to get done today so that's another factor it's just like people don't like the, the broad voting public doesn't appreciate how much there is a fundamental huge mismatch in uh in the amount of like just sheer operational funding uh that each sort of party and caucus has um to talk about sort of individual highlights uh, of the platforms one that i think we found baffling uh was in the liberal platform on housing just before we delve into that i just want to say like we could go through the platforms and talk about the platforms over the course of an entire episode um we're choosing not to do that for whatever reason um but in reading through it i think we found little you know quirky things or fun things that have left us with questions and those are the ones that we're going to choose to highlight rather than having a broad ranging conversation comparing and contrasting you know in sort of an academic way you know let's go through yeah, environment yeah. policies and, and, first and then we'll deal with labor policies yeah. and, and, the, and the reality is we've actually talked about like the sort of like broad you know three-legged stool of each party's climate policy and past episodes and stuff so like and innovation policy and all, all of that stuff like we, we've we've been on the record on this you kind of know what we think about it um and the one thing i would say is like the longer i've been in politics the less i think platforms matter i think like you get into government and it's just like no no plan survives contact with the enemy and and no platform survives contact with the public service and with you know contingencies of what just happens while you're in not, office not so, to sound like a broken record yeah. but i would uh flag paul wells piece uh, two maybe three weeks ago where he basically makes the case uh early on in one of his articles uh the case against platforms um, which was refreshing yeah. to hear because often platforms, as I said earlier, are held up as sort of the gold standard that you only have credibility talking about who you're going to vote for if you've thoroughly reviewed everyone's platform. Yeah, it's, it's just like they're not going to do a lot of it because a lot of it wasn't practical to promise and like people don't really know that sometimes or sometimes they do and it's, it's a mess. Anyway, so the, the thing we wanted to flag from the liberal housing platform was the rent-to-own policy, which uh, someone had flagged. They had they sort of teased earlier and I was kind of like, okay like let's let's see what this looks like because uh, certainly you know giving people a sort of leg up into the housing market fine sure uh, fundamentally I'm not of the view that demand side stuff is the way to go uh, to address the real core need but like around the margin absolutely great uh, what they came out with was really weird and I don't understand it in the slightest what they've come out with is basically a system where a landlord agrees to a below market rate rent and a transfer of ownership of the property within five years. So to me, like, I find it hard to imagine a landlord saying, you know what I really hate is money and I want less of it. And also I don't want to own some of these income properties. And I'd, I'd like to get rid of it at today's prices instead of the prices that will prevail in five years when presumably they will have appreciated more considering the sort of core scarcity problem in Canadian housing and urban centers. I don't really know who's going to sign up for that program on the, the landlord side of things. So here's my here's what I would add to that. Um, you know, most landlords in Canada are large commercial landlords um, who own, for instance, large 
apartment buildings. Uh, the idea that these landlords would want to start piecemeal selling those and basically converting them to condos. Yes, yeah, is... so they sort of have to create a partial condo corporation that includes as many units as they have sold off and then themselves as the balanced shareholder apart so, from it. So like, it doesn't it make doesn't... sense in that context. It's very weird. And then it's like, <laughs> okay, so let's think about it in other contexts in the housing market. And the only one I can come up with is like folks renting an entire house um because yeah. if it's like a multi-unit like a a five unit structure or maybe an infill in a new neighborhood or something like that yeah again it doesn't really make sense that the landlord would be wanting to sell off uh, buildings that are typically bought and sold as a package um unit yes. by unit if they can at all um because of municipal ordinances and such um so it's like landlords who own a single family house and are trying to sell a single family house but at a like at a haircut but then so then you look at the costing <laughs> for the program and they the liberals yeah. in the platform dedicate uh, i think it ranges depending on the year is it like from 125 to 150 million a year and it's like, yeah. okay, so it's clear they're subsidizing something here. Um, they're either rewarding the landlord for um, subscribing to the program or covering the landlord's costs or something like that. But it's like, yeah. to what end? <laughs> like, why would you yeah. be paying the landlord one. to sell their property? Like, that's just... Fundamentally, you're plugging in at sort of the wrong part of it. When I read... When, yeah. when they teased the announcement, I thought it was going to be a program through CMHC, where CMHC basically yeah. bought a whack ton of houses and did sort of the conventional rent-to-own model. Where, like, yeah, did Margaret Thatcher yeah, speed C run. CMHC is sitting on... <laughs> create, create and privatize a whole bunch yes, of public housing. That, that's it. Like, buy <laughs> up or create um, yes. houses and make it public and then sell it and, and then do the, the conventional rent-to-own model. They're trying to do it through private yeah. landlords. Like, this is one of the policies, like, I don't know where it came from. It didn't obviously come from an advocacy group that I'm aware of, although I, I concede I'm not into all of the housing advocacy groups. I don't know all of their proposals that they've had floating around. Um, but I struggle to think of who would have been advocating for this one. Um, so, like, sometimes, you know, as we said, the liberals have the... Uh, have the benefit of having more robust policy thinking and are able to draw from, you know, Australia, the UK are common places where policy is drawn from. Um, I don't know of a model. Maybe Tyler Meredith has tweeted out, like, uh, this is our policy justification for that. He did comparable things around the equity program for housing. When the equity program for housing got criticism, it still seems right. to be not a success. Um, despite him tweeting out, like, the basically the, the policy background that they use to justify developing in Canada. Um, but it seems like time and time again, the Liberals have come up with sort of convoluted housing schemes. Um, the equity model that has seen low uptake, and so they tweaked it. And again, it's, you know, it's not... I cannot see a world where this gets high. It's uptake, not yeah. getting the uptake that it has been projected to get, um, and still seems really marginal. Um, and this seems to be another one in that camp. But, you know, it's not the... Uh, it's not the flagship of their housing. Uh, I guess the flagship of their housing is they are going to build, repair, uh, 
and revitalize. They they change, preserve, revitalize, to decorate. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of other look at, take yeah. pictures of. See 1.4 million houses. There's there's a very big asterisk. Imagine. On um, yes. You know they they had leaked that to a Toronto Star journalist in advance who had writ, written a uh, a very nice piece about it that seemed very unsubstantiated yeah, after the fact. Get rolled by that. Um, when the policy yeah. details came out, and I kind of felt bad for that journalist who sort of took them hook, line, and sinker on their policy announcement. Uh, because there were so many caveats and asterisks on what they were going to do around housing, um, that it, you know, I, I yeah, not not to get into a comparison of all the different uh, housing policies between the Conservatives, NDP, and uh, Liberals. Although the Conservatives seem to have a very good housing policy, um, the Conservative policy I would like to point to as an interesting one is the co-determination policy. Um, because it's certainly not something I super expected to see. I think they kind of hinted at, you know, something like um, a German-style model and uh, co-determination. Is okay, so one. start very uh, quickly by explaining what co-determination sure. is. Because yes. co-determination, co-determination is a system is where basically companies over... Yes, co-determination is a system where in companies over a certain size, usually uh, workers have a certain percentage of board seats uh, reserved for them and of... The, the method for electing them is typically kind of done at the firm level. Um, so it's an interesting one. This is a system in Germany and in uh, several Nordic countries as well, I believe. Uh, and I think people have, you know, people there tend to like it. And I think it's been a driver to some extent of the sort of medium sized firms in Germany being able to sort of uh, succeed where others have not in similar circumstances. Of course, you know, the they have lots of reasons for that and the sort of uh, very competitive export regime they have is, is a big driver of that, but we'll leave that to one side because we don't have to get into the political economy of Germany right now. Uh, but at any rate, a bit surprising. I think unions are like kind of about it in the Canadian context. And it's, I think in Manitoba, there was a short-lived attempt to do this um, that seems to have been kind of quietly scrapped in the 70s or 80s. Um, I don't know a whole ton about that attempt. Uh, but it's an interesting move, and I think, like, you know, it's certainly a discussion that I think should take up more room. It was recently as well in the, the sort of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren campaigns as one of their themes, uh, which is not usually where you'd expect the conservatives to go look for things. Um, so all that to say, I, I'm, you know, like, usually if the conservatives are coming out with something, my, my standard reflex is to be a little, hmm, about it, uh, just from the point of view that if... Uh, if the cats are coming to the mice with uh, with the menu, uh, you got to make sure, real sure you're not on it. Uh, but uh, all that to say, it's, it's interesting. I think it should at least challenge the, the left of center parties to think a little harder about like moving beyond just like social democracy is taxing and spending and think and social programs and thinking and like, how can you actually like transform the structure of the economy and to grow the, the labor share uh, and, and all of that stuff. So, if nothing else, I hope it serves as a provocative challenge to think bigger in the future. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I would add is a little political context is very early on, um, Aaron O'Toole, post-leadership, made some appeals to union members um, about how he was going to change things, you know, characterizing himself around his family's history with General Motors um, was sort of how it was framed uh, from a personal perspective. And then it seemed like nothing had come from it and it was sort of radio silence for a while. And then on the platform, suddenly there is some, uh, you know, 
federal policy ideas that have not been seen or heard from any of the political parties and that are uh, you know often seen as more in the realm of the left wing than the right wing um, and you know it's some of these ideas and they're sort of scattered out th they're scattered throughout the conservative platform that led to people folks like David Hurley um, calling it more of a PC platform than a uh, traditional well than a uh, conservative party platform in sort of yeah. recent recent political memory Sure, and, and to be clear, like code of termination, like I think it's it's I don't have like I haven't seen enough empirical evidence to say like it's a super, you know, left wing policy that will instantly turn Canada socialist and, and great and everything. But I, it, like Germany, obviously, is is a reasonably successful, broadly social democratic country, and it hasn't seemed to have imploded things one way or the other there. Um, you know, same with Scandinavian countries, and there seems to be a broad political consensus that these things are a good idea across the political spectrum there. Um, so, you know, it, it's part of, I think the sort of political center right looks at it as kind of a corporatist thing where you're coming together and you're, you know, finding solutions, blah, blah, blah. And the left wing parties think of it as like, this is more of a voice for labor at the table and great. Sure. Um, so yeah, all that to say. Yeah, if if nothing else, it repre it represents a divergence of the conservative perspective uh, on unions from being sort of uh, unions bad. Um, it's rather the here are ways we would like to improve the labor situation in Canada. Yes, um, though there's the right wing sort of hook has never been exactly unions bad it's been union bosses. Sorry, bad. yes, yes, you are. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I correct myself. You are exactly right. Um, and, you know, there, as I said, sort of sprinkled throughout the campaign, one of the other uh, notable pivots in this campaign for the conservatives uh, was around uh, uh, safe injection sites. Um, Aaron O'Toole has, you know, very much changed party policy on that. Um, the other one, although this was leaked well in advance, is around uh, carbon pricing or carbon air miles, as the case may be. Um, <laughs> you know, he's certainly putting his stamp uh, on party policy in very specific areas. Don't get me wrong, in many other areas, uh, it's very status quo. Um, resource development, for instance, uh, you won't see a lot of changes in that section of the platform uh, uh, versus what the conservatives have been campaigning on in the last you know decade. Uh, but yeah. nonetheless, it represents a very different platform than the sheer platform sort of in its entirety. And you can sort of see where Aaron O'Toole has taken very different policy stances than his predecessors. Um, yeah, and I think we're focusing more on the conservative platform here because I think it represents more of a point of departure yes. than the other ones from previous platforms. So I think it, in that sense, it's more interesting to talk about. Like, I don't really have a lot to say about the NDP platform. So tell me about the tax cop. Essentially similar to the last one. Or sorry, the gas, it, gas yeah, cop. Yeah, the, the gas price is high. The, the one thing I would just say... Uh, on the conservative platform is that there's still a lot in there that is like I, I read the indigenous section and I was like this is in no way better than anything that's come before I thought that was a huge 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 disappointment and missed opportunity for them to be better on that uh, it's basically like undrip rights are great insofar as they are a right to say yes to pipelines which I thought was just like a horrifically insulting framing and I think will not do them any good in, in establishing any seriousness on the importance of reconciliation and them as agents of that so huge huge miss uh and i thought that was really disappointing and the yeah like i find that if you read the climate stuff and the energy stuff and tension uh you're left 
scratching your head a little bit as to which of those things will prevail, though I think most people realistically will not actually be scratching their heads and they will know exactly which one of those things will prevail, <laughs> if we're being honest. So before anyone accuses me of being too nice to the conservatives, I, I would say I definitely saw that and thought there were large issues there. Um, yes, we're going to have to the, cut this uh, all when competition... you at the part where you were nice to the conservatives. Yes, fair enough. I did. Th- they did do interesting things on competition, so I'll give them that. Um, speaking of competition, and this is where you wanted me to go, uh, the NDP create a, a gas a gas prices watchdog. So this is some classic, but not a, not a bread prices watchdog in the best way. Not a bread prices watchdog. No, which I think the the conservatives did specifically point to. Uh, so good for them. Uh, but the NDP pros a gas prices watchdog, and this is born because in a lot of rural areas, in northern Ontario is the one I, I know anything about here, uh, you often see big, seemingly coordinated, allegedly coordinated price hikes all at the same time by gas stations um, that go, go far and above like the sort of seasonal and other effects that you would expect to see. The Competition Bureau in Canada, and I could speak for a very long time about this, is a really 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 sleepy watchdog uh very very tired very very sleepy has had a long day uh and its response to these things is usually like well if you can bring us proof of a hard cartel (laughs) then please let us know and obviously you know you don't have as a person you just don't really have access to every gas station's books and call logs and i'm just showing up with dairy it's kind of hard dairy prices and they're not doing anything it's it's kind of hard to do a um a, a analysis of a, of a cartel for uh, for the competition bureau so this is a, a long-standing complaint in rural areas so i think this is a sort of thing to say like we take this issue seriously and we would actually like to see the competition bureau do something about it uh via a third-party watchdog that would be mandated with specifically like collecting information about it and i think that's fine i i think more broadly like you know the competition act could stand to have a look um there, uh, the economist Robin Chabin and uh, Vass Bedner wrote a uh, quite quite good piece about a change you can make to the Competition Act, reversing a 2009 Budget Implementation Act change uh, that basically made it. And this came out in the context of pandemic pay, where like a lot of the grocery stores, sort of at the same time, all said like we're ending pandemic pay, which was legal because from this 2009 change. Um, buying stuff or sorry selling stuff couldn't be cartelized like illegally uh but selling or buying stuff could so including labor and that sort of becomes a much harder to prove civil case rather than a criminal one or a competition act and robin i don't know if you listen but apologies if i butchered that um but uh yes so all that to say like there's really like good opportunities there i think like there's reasons to be skeptical of like the like big competition push in the u.s and there like, if you're a left-wing person i think like there's stuff there part of that agenda you might not want to sign up for but like i certainly think in our economy where we have a small collection of very dominant companies like it really couldn't hurt to take a harder look at the competition so act. hear me out duff conacher for competition act watchdog you know i don't hate it <laughs> All right, I think we are at the end of our time. Although our time is uh, theoretically limitless, but I think yeah, we could we could be uh, here all day. Really, I think but, for the yeah, purposes we'll of there. not scaring off uh, potential viewers by having five-hour episodes, um, we are yes, we're not we're not Joe Rogan <laughs> yet. One day soon, chewing on my delicious horse paste. <laughs>
anything to add before we close it out? No, I think that's good. I think uh, we're, we're we're having fun keeping it loose. Hope everyone's enjoyed their their summer. Um, we will be back kind of in in quicker rotation now that uh, the sort of summer months book, are over. Book club is still uh, on. We have not forgotten about you. Book club is still on. Readers. Yep. Um, yes, read Eddie Goldenberg's The Way It Works Inside Ottawa. Good thing I didn't make a chance to say that because he forgot the name of the book the other day and fl- floundered for like a good two minutes. <laughs> we will have that discussion it. in the coming weeks, certainly sometime in September. Yes, and we actually have some other book review episodes coming as well since uh, I realized uh, if you're a podcast, you can just email book publishers and they'll just send you books. It's crazy. It's great power. It's an awesome power. So yeah, we've been making use of that and we'll have some book review episodes in the not too distant future, hopefully, and a bunch of guests that we've been hoping to have on also in the fall. Uh, yeah, a lot of stuff has kind of gotten backlog of the summer. It's just been a busy time for both of us and uh, yeah, a lot of stuff going on. So it is the way it, is the way it goes. Uh, and I, I thank you all for your patience and for continuing to listen to the show. Your listens are most greatly appreciated. I'd love to see that little number go up uh, and positive. <laughs> yes, as, as well as reviews. Review us on X platform. Write us to tell us about your review if it's on a platform that I'm unlikely to check. Um, generally be in contact yes. as we, we love and, to hear that there are actual yes, people on the us. other end of the radio transmitter. So. Yes, we would probably do this anyway, even if there was no one. But it's, it's even cooler. Yeah, that email there us are at shortpants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can email us at shortpantspod at gmail.com or send us a Twitter DM or just tweet at us at shortpantspod or the backbench at gmail.com, I think is another one. Although there is now a proliferation of uh, of podcasts called yes. the backbench. Two podcasts with similar yes. names now. And we that. were yes. the original sort yes. of false start on that one. So here we are. Yes, we decided otherwise, and we like our name now. Anyway, that will do it for us tonight. Thank you once again, as always, for listening, and bye-bye.